Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? Let's just cut straight to the good news on today's Irish Times Second Campus Football Podcast. Ken Erty is back from his summer holiday. Hi, I'm glad you glad you see it as good news. Well, Happy to hear that. Yeah, extremely good news. And uh, Murph is also here. <laughs> Hello there, Owen, and thank you for that warm welcome. I should probably uh, mention to our podcast friends that you boys went on the same summer holiday. Well, that's not the exact same summer holiday. You didn't go together. Not at the same time, and not the exact same. But basically what happened was Ken was uh, unsure as to the de- his holiday destination. Uh, our work colleague and friend, Collie McEwen, had gone to Croatia. Mm-hmm. So Ken said, yeah, I think I'm, I I'm going to go to Croatia this year. And then I went to Sicily, came back, and then Ken said, yeah, I think I'm going to go to Sicily. Where did you get? flew into Palermo? Yeah, okay, cool, yeah. Easily suggestible. Easily led, Ken. Well, look, I, on, I, didn't, I didn't know. Actually, I was talking to Fionn Davenport. He knows a Travel lot about expert, yeah. He knows a lot about Sicily, it turns out. Um, and he gave me some pretty good advice. I'd, so I'd, I would say that my holiday was probably better than Kieran's. Because uh, you had better balance. advice. Yeah, I mean, I, I listened. Sort of I consulted the expert, uh, and I took the appropriate course of action. Which was, and while I think, well, I, I talked to Karen about his holiday canvas, what he had done, and it turned out it was this exhausting series of oh, getting on a ferry to oh, I've got to go and see some uh, volcanic island or something <laughs> like this, you know. And I just thought to myself, you know, is that really what I want to be? Is doing? that a holiday, really? No, I mean, to me, that's a, that's like. Um, you know, covering uh, the Premier League football beat. Paul Kimmage says it's the worst job in journalism. And uh, essentially, you know, it, what it mainly consists of is getting trains everywhere. Uh, you got to get up early and you got to get in a train. Unless you're driving, in which case you spend a lot of time behind the wheel. And to me, sorry to say, Kieran's holiday sounded a lot like that. Listen, if you want to cause it yourself, you know, uh, first of all, you know, I'd like to congratulate you on, you know, if, you know, as consulting the tour guide. 
and then slavishly following exactly what he said. Look, so not to experience his anything family. off the It's like a itself. walking travel journal. His, his, yeah. family is, yeah, his family visits Sicily every year. They go to... Um, What's it called in uh, San Zito in the Cabo or whatever? Just around the top, uh, top uh, left-hand corner the, there. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, we get, we get, yeah. We get the idea. Good, yeah. yeah. Um, well, listen, you know, it was, uh, you know, I'm sure you had a good time. I'm sure you had a good time. You know, when it comes, I mean, you're easily pleased. Uh, a book, a cold, a cold brew, and a beach. That's all Ken wants, you know. What more I mean, can I just, anyone want? I just asked for a little more. You know, I wanted to sample the sights and sounds, you know. So, I mean, you know, different strokes for different folks on. You Sicily, know? of course, is a rich melange of cultures. Well, would I say melange, or maybe it's more of a palimpsest of uh, of culture. Um, I did go, I saw a Norman uh, palace. No idea the Normans were even in Sicily, to be honest, Love before you. then, but there you go. Uh, I, I climbed up the rock of Shefalu, which features a, um, a megalithic tomb, the Temple of Diana, uh, on the top of its uh, imposing 300 meter uh, height. Ah, we've got those here. Apparently, the people had to had to ha- having dwelt uh, for Tripping centuries. Over those, we are over here. Ha- having dwelt for centuries peacefully by the by the beach, uh, they at some point in history had to move up to the top of the rock overlooking the town because of uh, the danger of pirates attacking them from the uh, from the sea. There apparently it was very dangerous back in the day. Not so much anymore, Owen. Uh, I have to say, I recommend it heartily to well, all travellers. Well, it's all gone. Italian 90 nostalgia crazy over the last couple of weeks so the obvious question you boys were in his neck of the woods did you meet the great man Toto Scalacci Toto's an old friend of mine Um, Toto's a friend but uh, (laughs) did you interview him once I did yeah Uh, how did that uh, I didn't think he spoke English he can't really Uh, and this is a radio interview it was. Uh, he was in that hotel <laughs> on Stevens Green. Um, what you call it? You know the one next door to like TJR Fridays. Kind of. What's it called? Dandelion. Mm. No, that's the cafe. That's, that's uh, yeah. No, the, no, it's kind of a one of the Fitzwilliam. posh hotel. Is that yeah? Fitzway. He's in the Fitzwilliam Hotel, and uh, he yeah, it was some something to do with Italian night. Maybe it was a twentieth anniversary. I don't know. Or maybe pff. he was in an ad for. Uh, oh, no! I don't want to say the wrong beer. Was it not Smithix? Was he in a Smithwick? He was. He, 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 I remember the one you're talking about. He, he uh, meets a couple of Irish lads and he has a mm. beer. The thing that most impressed me about him uh, was his remarkable hair. Because I remember Toto Scalacci as a bald man. <laughs> uh, but here he was and he looked a bit like uh, Jared Leto. Uh, he'd got this, he'd got this uh, black hair in curtains uh, streaming thickly from uh, the top of his head. Uh, you you definitely would not recognise you would not have recognised Toto Scalacci if you if you'd come across him in Dublin that day. I'm afraid maybe if he looked at you appealingly with those saucer shaped eyes, <laughs> some something might have stirred in your memory. But you you still wouldn't have put two and two together and said that's definitely Toto Scalacci. In the end, I just had to get him to uh, because it, it became it became apparent that he doesn't speak English at all. In fact, so in the end, I just had to ask him if he would be read so kind as to line. read out that read out a. Read out a line, a sting for the for the program that we were then working on, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and he's so obliged. He did indeed. I, I remember all this now. Time for Ken Hurdy's report on sport. So, uh, where are we out? We haven't started yet, really. Um, we were talking about Tony Scalacci. We can keep talking about just you know, it's midsummer. There's, there's not there's no limit to the amount of airtime we can give over to Tony Scalacci and his exploits in Italian ninety. Where did he come from? Where did he go to afterwards? Who cares? Uh, the Greek crisis. 
Um, I was going to ask about the Greek crisis later on. Well, I mean, if you want to jump straight in there, the Europe has literally melted down in your absence. Yeah, you we're in Europe, but you know. I, mean. I see that Jean Claude Juncker, um, who is the head of the European Commission, has um, delivered one of the killer political lines of our time. Aren't? He says, "I say to the Greek people, you should not commit suicide because you are afraid of death." <laughs> what a uh, what a line that is! This guy really has that that ability to excite people about his his project. He's offering them a choice. It sounds like between death and suicide. <laughs> um, Mary as a leper's bell, uh, John Claude Juncker, and his friends Laggard and Draghi. It's like a Dickensian sort of group of um, really not very fun sounding people who are uh, telling the Greeks what to do. Um, so I'm sure we'll follow that on with interest. Are you standing by our Greek brothers and sisters? Uh, I I mean, it's hard to know, really, isn't it? I think, I kind of feel like we should. Should we not stand by our Greek brothers and sisters? There, but for the grace of... Oh, wait, hang on. We already have been there. And we're, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think... We just went with the flow. Yeah, we, we did what we were told, like, good boys. <laughs> good little boys and girls. Um, so I don't know. We'll see how it works out. But all over Europe, um, things are changing. Uh, the old ways are under attack. And nowhere is this clearer than in the immediate aftermath of Sweden's thrilling 4-1 uh, Euro under-21 uh, semi-final victory over their old buddies uh, from across the way there in Denmark. Oh, explosive. Um, Sweden and Denmark. Uh, okay, Sweden are going to be in the final against Portugal. Portugal had a good result to run, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, the um, match, the thing that everybody's noticed about the match was the remarkable post-match interview conducted by the young Swedish striker uh, who recently spent the season there at Celtic, uh, John Guidetti. And John Guidetti uh, bounded over to the on-field interviewer and engaged in a bit of uh, chest barging um, and sort of horseplay. <laughs> and uh, then they then grabbed him. They, they were there standing their arms around each other, you know, manly arms around each other. Uh, the guy probably thinking, Guidetti's sweating a lot on this suit. <sighs> Gonna have to get this dry cleaned, um, but manages to maintain his composure to just long enough to say, "Oh, John, you know, great result, well done." Uh, and Grady is, "Yeah, you know, uh, I think it's about time that they, they those guys stop talking." And the guy's kind of looking at him like, "What are you, you know, what are you talking about?" And he said, "Stop saying we're easy to play against when you lose four-one. It's a bit embarrassing. We're the best in the Nordics. Now we're gonna play in the final. We're Sweden. The rest of them can just go home. We let them talk. Yeah, we let them talk. We let them say what they had to say. But in the end, it's about results. They've just talked and they have shown no results. We were superior, totally superior. This is the worst team we have met in the under twenty-one Euro. Um, the the uh, somewhat taken aback uh, sports broadcaster." Says with a with a rueful grin to Guidetti, "Oh, you know, it's a it's a happy time for Sweden. Uh, why don't why can't we all just be happy? Because uh, this is a happy result. We don't need to, you know, be mad at the Danes." And uh, he says, "I'm super happy. We're the best in the Nordics. That's how it is." <laughs> at which at which point, uh, one of his uh, mates uh, from the team um, comes over and starts chanting the you know the Colo Toure Yaya Toure chant. Just with his, the name changed to John Guidetti. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they walk off kind of singing this song to each other. Milo, 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 Milo Savage and John Guidetti. So that's, you know, happy uh, Swedes together. But 
this is not like any other Swedish player we've seen before with one notable exception. Yeah, I think I know the notable exception. Beginning with a Z, perhaps? Beginning with a Z. And, you know, first of all, you get the originator and then you get the legion of imitators. Um, Sweden, for as long as anybody can remember, has been the world's most modest society. It's considered to be an extremely bad form to boast, brag, gloat, lord it, or, or otherwise... Uh, act in, in the manner that, precisely the manner that John Guidetti was doing in this post-match interview. But Zlatan kind of smashed all that to, to one side in his rise to becoming the greatest, uh, possibly, well, he says greatest ever, but the Swedish voters say Bjorn Borg is still greater. Um, the second greatest ever Swedish sports star. Um, figured out that, in fact, um, somebody who uh, completely... Uh, sort of sets aside all of these rules about modesty and not bigging yourself up and not uh, trash-talking your opponent actually attracts a lot of grudging admiration and even not so grudging. All the Swedes secretly wish they could kind of be like that. He's like, he's like giving vent to their... He's giving vent to their greatest desire. He's living their dream and saying, you know, hey, you wish you could be like me. And John Guidetti is apparently now doing the same thing. I say to John Guidetti, you need to score more goals first, mate. This is not, you can't just start acting that way and expect everything's going to go okay with you. He, John Guidetti could be the man who ends up taking the backlash over this, I'm, I'm afraid. Doing it, in, doing it in the immediate aftermath of a semi-final mm. always seems like, you know, it's yeah. not a great idea. It's a bit like, come in and let me explain to you how I took the initiative in resurrecting Liverpool Football Club season just before, the, just before you have to play Manchester United. Um, it's a little bit like that. But, you know, it shows the changes that are happening in, in our world today. Owen. That's part of our world today. What was the good result from the good Portuguese result you mentioned? This is the hammering of Germany. This was Portugal absolutely destroying Germany 5-0. Germany's heavy, heaviest ever under-21 result. Uh, and in the aftermath of this, a scandal, a GAA-style scandal uh, involving the German under-21 players, a group of black sheep led by... Uh, led by young Emre Chan, who doesn't half think he's a bit special, at least according to the, um, well, a lot of the German media and, and at least one of his teammates. Uh, Emre Chan uh, went out with a group of four uh, of his teammates, Marz Leitner, Leonardo Bittencourt, Nico Schulz and Yunus Mali. And uh, one of them put up on Instagram, this is what, this is a problem, stop putting your stupid stuff on Instagram. So one of them takes a photo or has a photo taken. The five of them sitting in a you know cafe or whatever in Prague, uh, thumbs up to the camera. Five teammates all uh, having a great time at the under twenty one Euros, and each of them has got in front of him a gigantic family sized pizza. Each of them has one. They've waited for the pizzas to arrive before they take the photograph and put it on Instagram, and they've got lots of stupid little hashtags, and everybody's looking at this going hmm. That's uh, that's lovely. Nice to see there. Uh, well, looking they're looking at the nice pizza because the pizzas do look good. Pizzas look great. I'm looking hungry at the, pizza, to look at the Trying to see what uh, what kind of pizzas they're all having, you know. And then they go and lose five nil. Well, suddenly those pizzas are looking a bit like the High Ramsden Challenge. You know, it's a context dependent thing. You know, in the con- uh, you can as long as you win, nobody cares about the pizza. But suddenly now that you've lost five nil, you've got some people. Wondering if maybe that was a little bit too much pizza to be having the day before a game. Uh, one of whom was, I find this actually quite amazing, is Matthias Ginter, the Borussia Dortmund uh, player who was actually in the World Cup squad in Brazil last year. Um, 
I think he was in the World Cup squad. I'm saying he's in the World Cup squad, and we can check that later. And if of course. Um, he says, every player must ask themselves if they were absolutely professional that day. Some players were not as professional as you should be before a semi-final, which has to rank among the most priggish things any under-21 footballer has ever said in criticism of his teammates, in my opinion. Emre Chan, for his part, says that going out for a pizza is normal. <laughs> That's, you, know, you see, you shouldn't say that. Going out for a pizza is normal. But perhaps I did think before the game that I was the best. I had to get my feet back on the ground, says Chan. I'm kind of thinking to myself, he should have picked one way and gone for it. Either groveling apology... Or, who is, I've never heard of this guy, Ginter, who is he? Um, what, <laughs> I, what, what I don't think that's a very good, I don't think that's a very good idea. But he does, Ginter se- was in the World Cup squad in 2014, after all, Ken. Never heard of the guy. Never heard of him. <laughs> Ginter? Who is this Minter? Uh, but but he, he says, um, you know, he says essentially that, uh, first of all, I didn't do anything wrong. And then he says, but maybe I did get totally carried away with all the praise I was getting during the tournament. Uh, I've received a lot of praise. Nothing happened. We behaved in the way we should. I don't know what Matson means. So he kind of then goes back to his original position of I I never did anything wrong. So I don't know. Emre Chan needs to to stop emitting uh, mixed messages. It is good, though, to see that it's not just um, GA teams who get pulled up on this kind of thing. The pizzas don't look that unhealthy to me. I mean, the Barcelona players eat pizza before a match, you know. Yeah, I mean, is there a healthy option that they could possibly have been eating? You know, like a gluten-free pizza? Maybe it was gluten-free. It doesn't say. It's not I mean, in the hashtags on Instagram. I think we're overstating the impact of the pizza here, right? Think of... Okay, I'm going to ask you the greatest defender in European football in the last 25 years. Paolo Maldini? Correct. You're suggesting Paolo Maldini probably ate a I, couple of pizzas. Am I suggesting, Ken, or am I about to present you with ri- a written record of his pizza-eating antics? Well... Uh, this is an article that I don't have... I can't uh, attribute it to anyone. I remember reading it at the time. I've done a quick Google. It's mm-hmm. popped up here on redcafe.net for some reason. Okay. Uh, so uh, apologies to the journalist in question here. And when was the last time he went out for a pizza and a beer? Beer I don't like, but pizza, yes, says Maldini. A lot, he adds guiltily. As though he fears one of the club's dietitians might be listening at the door. Actually, I like going out for a, tra- a trancia. Trancia? How do you... A trancia, trancia is probably a slice, is it? Is the extra thick, piping hot version of pizza, pizza sliced into tranches and often shared as a takeaway. So the captain of AC Milan likes the equivalent of a deep pan pizza. Many of his countrymen regard it as an absolute culinary abomination. Oh. He lists some of the places he frequents around town in his nocturnal escapades. I ask him if the staff are surprised when he walks in. No. They're used to it by now. <laughs> Apparently, Dimitro, this is what a good journalist does, Ken, even though this guy is unnamed. He asks Dimitro Albertini to confirm or deny. And Albertini says, oh, yes, Paolo and I would often go out in Milan for a beer and a pizza. This city helps you a lot. Milan treats famous personalities in a normal way. Oh, that's good. In a normal way. Not like um, some other cities we could talk about. But I think I had one of those. I think I had one of those in, in Palermo. All right. A trench here. Um, I don't know what it was called. Typical. Everything for some reason is typical. Typical Sicilian products. I'm like, this, the shop is selling, the shop says it's, I'm selling typical products. You know, when I see that uh, when I'm abroad, I, I just kind of presume that typical, you know, or like a, a variant of the word typical means something in Italian. And as a result, it's, they just kind of throw it out there. You know, say it's yeah. normal. It's you know, normal. Yeah, the, the amount of, is it Italian? No, Spanish people, I think, say that the whole time, is it? Like, in English, you know, it's normal. Yeah. 
It's normal. I mean, I'm, I'm just presuming that there's a word in Spanish that means... It sounds a lot like normal. Maybe normal? Is that a word? Anyway, I've just presented you with... Uh, incontrovertible evidence. Incontrovertible evidence. And that, 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 that type of pizza that he's talking about, I ha- I'm pizza pretty sure I had one. What we're talking about is like a square of thick, thick kind of doughy base with not a lot of stuff on top of it. I was kind of looking at it thinking, really? You know? Is this re- Am I really about to eat this? But I, I stuffed it all down and it was great. It was grand. I didn't share any of it. Um... To hear that he's eating that, you know, it doesn't surprise me. It seems as though if you grow up in Italy, you can eat pizza, you can eat, you can eat pasta, you can eat, you know, swordfish, you can eat shellfish, and otherwise you're going to go hungry. So <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me to hear eat. You know, I don't know. I don't think it's. I don't think it's a big problem. I am a little surprised. I think Ginter's like the team down as well. Or Minter. I know. I know a lot of people are into this. Are into this accountability, you know? But when do you, when do you cross the line from accountability? Uh, you know, from demanding the best from your teammates, when does that cross the line into public finger pointing? You know, that's. Well, he's a whistleblower. Aren't we supposed to applaud whistleblowers in today's society? He is a well. I suppose he's a whistle. He's not exactly a whistleblower because these these guys blew the whistles on, on themselves. <laughs> <With> <laughs> Instagram <laughs> they, just yeah, if you keep putting stuff up on Instagram, then eventually you know you put up something that after the next the next day. Oh, look, what can I say? Oh, and I can't. You know, I, I can't hold back the tide on this one, can I? So you want to bring some Ramos, Sergio Ramos news? Uh, Ramos, well, we'll talk to Sue Lowe about okay, uh, Sergio Ramos. Uh, the news essentially today being that Manchester City seem to be... Uh, Manchester City are interested, according to, at least to somebody's agent, and that may be Sergio Ramos. Another l- rumour linking Manchester United to Bastian Schweinsteiger recently, who would seem like a puzzling signing for me. And you can see why you know, maybe Schweinsteiger would, would be an improvement for Manchester United's midfield, at least on the day he arrived. But... Over time, I'm not really sure he's the type of player they should be trying to sign. He says anyway he wants to stay with Bayern Munich, um, wants to win the Champions League, blah, blah, blah. It's, I mean, I'm, the reason I'm telling you something like this is that there's not a whole lot going on here. I mean, we never got to talk about Falcao. Is that a whole sign seal delivered, Falcao, Chelsea? Uh, yeah, well, I think it might have been subject to uh, medical. Yeah. Um, what a result that is for, for everybody at Chelsea, apart from the club. Uh, a great result for, 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 for the manager, for, for the agent, for the manager, and for the agent. It's amazing. I think it's just an incredible deal. What unless, they? unless they've literally signed him on a contract, which is you know, a million euros a year, plus you know you get like a hundred grand if you score a goal. Unless he turned, it turns out to be the brilliant player he was up until the last eighteen months. Which, I mean, he seems to have misplaced that player. Maybe we can, if, if he can relocate the player, okay, maybe it's a good deal. At the moment, if he's signing on anything like the wages that he's on, and I see him, I, I kind of think to myself, well, why would he take a big cut in wages to join Chelsea? If he's signing on anything like those wages, this is an incredible deal that Chelsea have, have signed. I mean, I don't care what the transfer fee is. This is an enormous uh, financial outlay and a player who, whose form for the best part of two years can't possibly justify it. Mm. I find it incredible that they're that the club have have are are agreeing to that. You but, wanted to you mention know. the Women's World Cup. Um, yeah, well, the Women's World Cup uh, semi final. The lionesses of England. Yeah, the, so they're in the semi finals: England against Japan, Germany against the United States. Semi finals are over the next couple of days. Um, it's an interesting look to the. You can see that the richer the country, the uh, better. Um, the best, it's, success in women's football appears to be linked uh, almost directly to 
the wealth of the society. The Canadian coach who lost England in the last round was, is it an Englishman? And he was asked, um, well, you know, are you, there were rumours that you were actually going to take the job before the current English manager took it. Are you in any way envious now that they're through to the, to the last four? And he said, you mad? Ask any of our players. We wake, we, we wake up tomorrow, we get to go for a nice stroll around the sunshine. He, I thought he was slightly uh, rubbing it into uh, English people everywhere about the poor climate in which they live. What? And he's talking from a Canadian point of view? Yeah. I don't know where in Canada he's based. Well. I have limited knowledge of the Canadian manager again, I'm not going to lie. Canada is not world-renowned for its um, welcoming climate. Mm-hmm. Is it? I mean, it certainly isn't. I'll say that much, uh, Kieran. I was recently in Canada, of course. <laughs> and it was, in fact, very nice in Vancouver. But apparently it's supposed to have one of the nicest climates in Canada. A lot of it is f- uh, it was described to me owned by a Canadian as flat and cold. And that's what a uh, large proportion of the country is. I'm, I'm surprised just of it seems to me that if he was making a weather-based comment about it, <laughs> he, he really couldn't go with any good reasons. Uh, when, you, when you look at what's happening, though, the English... Uh, team um, has has reached the semi-final uh, and according to their coach that means they've joined the club 1966 and 1990 are the only other teams to have been able to do that and uh, there's just a couple of pieces say for instance Louise Taylor in the Guardian talking about how the English uh, team have been good tourists they haven't been like you know remember the the whenever the England team goes to the tournament not whenever but certainly saying South Africa in 2010 um, they apparently went mad with boredom they couldn't take it and in France they were in um, Rustenburg which is one of the most boring places in the world um, but they they couldn't uh, handle this just being in this like prison camp in the middle of nowhere with Fabio Capello uh, training for the for the World Cup you know what I mean it was too much for them to take uh, and then in 2006 in Germany it seemed almost the opposite problem they were overstimulated in this uh, luxurious environment surrounded by excitement and by fans and they and again they couldn't take it um, whereas, according to Louise Taylor, the women's team is uh, quite different. If only the equivalent male teams could learn a thing or two. Benefiting from a lack of ego-fueled internal politicking, a willingness to sacrifice personal glory for the squad's wider good, and a refusal to succumb to boredom or homesickness, things have become what international managers call good tourists. <laughs> so uh, there's the success of the women's team uh, quickly being turned into a stick with which to beat the failing that's the end of Kennerly's report on sport. Now, 
now, Cup America time with Miguel Delaney and James Young, who writes about Brazilian football for Sports Illustrated. You tweeted, James, during the Brazil-Paraguay game, uh, Brazil were beaten in penalties in this one and knocked out. That is, your tweet was, yeah, here it is, a display of spirit-crushing mediocrity and unrelenting gloom from Brazil so far, and not much hope it will get better. It uh, didn't really get any better at all for them. It doesn't sound great. No, no, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was very depressing to watch. Um, I think a stat that did the rounds on Twitter was that during the first half, Brazil had uh, had one touch of the ball in the Paraguay penalty area, and that was that was uh, Rubinho's goal. Um, Brazil had had uh, very little to offer. They've had they've had very little to offer throughout the tournament uh, in terms of attacking play, uh, especially since since Neymar was was suspended. Um, and I think what, what was remarkable about the Paraguay game was that. Uh, even given Brazil's decline over recent years, you still have this this inherent idea, especially against a team like Paraguay, that they're 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 favourites and they're going to do something interesting. Mm. Perhaps it's a, a romantic idea that, that that we should we should uh, free ourselves of. But um, you have this idea. Um, as as we were watching the game, it became very clear that uh, Paraguay weren't scared in the slightest, and and indeed Paraguay had most of the most of the possession, most of the attacking movement. Um, I think it's uh, Edgar Benitez. I think was was perhaps the most dangerous player on the pitch. Uh, and Brazil sat back and, and and looked to try and play in the counter attack, which against a team like Paraguay was is, is, is a remarkable state of affairs. What did you make of it, Miguel? Was it as, as bad as all that unrelenting gloom, spirit crushing mediocrity? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I suppose from the point of view of the tournament, it was good to see it uh, a team that bad and that dull go out. I um, mean, it's not just the way Brazil play; it's the whole attitude around them. They got to have this arrogant, boorish triumphalism that's undercut by this strange um, victim complex. I mean, it's happened so much during the tournament. And even on, on the eve of the game, Dunga had another horror show in which he, he compared criticism of his team to kind of Brazil's racial history. Yeah, what was he... Uh, can you explain what he was, what he was saying there or well, how it came across? We were talking to a few, a few Brazilian journalists and even they were kind of unsure of the, what he was trying to get at or the context. But he basically said... I must be an Afro descendant because I love to get beaten so much, which is a you know, I mean, well, hey, for such to order such racially abused comments in itself. I mean, in other countries he would have lost his job. James, do you um, think? Do you think there he's saying um, I must be an Afro descendant because I'm being persecuted as Afro descendants are in Brazil, or I must be an Afro descendant because I take a masochistic pleasure in being beaten? I think I think the former. He's using uh, Afro descendants as a metaphor for suffering, uh, and, and presumably comparing slavery, uh, social discrimination, uh, terrifying homicide rates with the, the the terrible suffering he undergoes as a as a football coach in Brazil. Yeah, which is a very Mil- ludicrous thing. Millionaire to say. Uh, football coach, Dunga. But I mean, what 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 uh, Miguel is saying there about Brazil's mentality? I, I wonder what you, I mean, a year on from from their humiliation before the world. Uh, have you noticed any changes in their outlook? I mean, obviously, they, they kind of fell back on their, let's say, tried and tested principles by appointing Dunga immediately. But is there, is there, do they still have that kind of arrogance that they are the best, or is there, is there a bit of anxiety beginning to creep in there now? Uh, unfortunately, I'd say the arrogance is still there, but it's, it's, it's limited to uh, possibly the worst place where, where it could be, which is in the, the corridors of, of power. Um, most fans don't don't really have it anymore, um, so it seems kind of to, to only exist at the CBF, the, the Brazilian FA, and uh, and amongst the players of the national team and, and the coach, which is possibly the worst place where, where it should be. You've got a situation where where most intelligent journalists and supporters 
realize that the glory days seem to have passed. But um, the, the people that where it matters, which is the, those in power and, and then those on the, on, the, on the field and the managers dugout, still seem to rely on this this, this long lineage of, of, of glory. And the, the wake-up call doesn't really seem to have got through yet to the, to, to the places where it needs to get through to. Well, Neymar is the... Yeah, sorry, Miguel, you want to come in there? I, mean, I think that's a, that, that was the thing. I mean, I wrote a piece of The Independent just before the tournament started, and that's everything Dunga represents. I mean, really, they should have confronted the... Re- like, the 7-1 should have been the moment and the warning, uh, you know, and the siren to, to confront the reality of their problems because, yeah, it, it wasn't a freak. And yet, Dunga came along and said he, his, his literal words were, the World Cup was something isolated. He, he almost represents this attempt to try and repress what's actually going on here. And, and until they do take some hard looks, uh, I think the, we, we could be seeing one of the, probably the greatest football nation going into uh, relative decline. Yeah, the one throwback uh, I was going to mention, obviously, is Neymar in the in his style of play, maybe if not his his, um, his attitude. But is much of the blame being placed on Neymar for getting himself ruled out of the tournament? He doesn't seem to. I think once again he's kind of escaped the worst of it, and he'd have a certain amount of sympathy for Neymar in that situation because um, I, I, I suppose the amount of pressure on him. To, to carry the burden of this team, it, it's almost overwhelming. And from that perspective, given his age, given the kind of profile of his career, you can perhaps understand a certain amount of how he seems to become more infantilized when he when he goes back to Brazil. I think it was something that James mentioned before. That's like uh, someone going back to their parents' house and totally regressing. James, just before we move on to Argentina, the, um, is there any question? Do you think maybe of the CBF? Uh, doing what they maybe should should have done last year and appointing someone other than Dunga. It's really hard to see Dunga making it to the World Cup now after this sort of disappointment quite early on in his tenure. Uh, you'd almost really wonder what was the point of, of letting this go on any longer. I also wondered if maybe, um, I mean, we saw uh, Marin, the former president of the CBF, was involved, was one of the arrested people um, in, the, in the FIFA uh, arrest there earlier in the month. I wonder if those investigations, a lot of which seem to involve games that Brazil played in and so on, if, if the sort of FBI might actually become a factor in driving uh, reform at the Brazilian uh, Football Association. Well, well that's, that's certainly the, the hope. If, 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 if anyone wants Brazil to get back to, to, to the glory days, there has to be some significant change at the top. And it does feel a little bit as though um, that push might be coming. There's There's... A number of strands seem to come together. There's the FIFA investigation, which which has seen Jose Maria Marin. Uh, he's arrested. He's currently in jail in, in Switzerland. There's talk of an impending move against the current. He's a former president, Marin. There's talk of a move against the, the, the current president, uh, Marco Polo Del Nero. Um, so there might be, hopefully, a wide-ranging investigation into, into the CBF from the FBI, also in the in the Brazilian Senate, they're 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 getting together um, uh, enough votes, enough support to to launch a parliamentary investigation into the, the goings on at CBF. So that's two attacks on two fronts. There's also the um, a player, a kind of informal player union called uh, Common Sense Football Club, which has for the last two years or so has been campaigning for campaigning for major change. In in Brazilian football, because the, the domestic games, as I'm sure you heard, is, is absolutely chaotic. With low crowds, teams not paying their players, uh, violence is rife. Uh, a terrible fixture calendar. 
Um, so, so you've got all this pressure. Romario has also been a, he's perhaps not the world's most level-headed politician, but he's been a, he's been a, a, certainly a virulent critic of, of, of Brazilian football, so that's more pressure on top of him. So, uh, plus growing, growing pressure in the media and so on, growing increases in the media coming from recent, recent defeats. So, so all these things are coming together. You would hope that that would be a force for change. But, but the CBF, of course, are, are propped up by a, a kind of classic, um, the kind of classic power structure you see in, 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 in former colonial countries where you have these, these 28 state federations, all of whom are run by CBF cronies. And, and they're responsible for, for voting for change in the CBF. So that change may, may be a long time coming. Um, in terms of Dunga, they've said that his job is, is safe. The, the quote from a senior CBF official was that he's safe and valued after his racist comments, the Copa America defeat, and uh, this seemingly phantom or not phantom bout of uh, man flu that, that was used as an excuse for the, for the Paraguay defeat. So he seems safe for the moment. Um, it's bizarre that, that people talk about Brazil needing to, to develop a long-term strategy and, and have a long-term vision, such as in the style of, of that Spain and Germany have done in recent years. Um, and when Brazil take the admirable move of, of putting in place a long-term strategy, the, the man they choose to lead it is Dunga. So they've gone long-term, which is good, but the man they've, they've gone with to lead the long-term is, is possibly less, less good. Miguel, Argentina squeaked through another rather violent encounter, um, so violent that even Juan Corrado became a bit of a hatchet man during that game and uh, had been booked and was looking not to get sent off. They relied on a couple of terrible penalties by Colombia in the shootout to go through. Are, are there still... You look at that Argentina team, it looks so good on paper. They seem pretty solid uh, as a as a unit, but uh, they don't necessarily, well, they certainly didn't have the spark up front against Colombia. Uh, would they be the hot favourites still for the tournament? Well, I actually think so. After the game, yes. I would slightly dispute that because I, 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 I think they have been pretty patchy and looking very rigid up until the Colombia game. But their first half in that match was the best performance I've seen from Argentina. By far the best performance, actually. Uh, from this Cup America and from the World Cup last year, in which they always seem to be just about getting by. I mean, they were brilliant for the first half. And really, it's it was amazing that they weren't absolutely out of sight or that Colombia had 11 men on the pitch. I think, to be fair, m- most of the aggression did come from the Colombian side. N- not that Argentina exactly um, angeled in that sense. And, and it perhaps increasingly respond to it. But they were, they were superb for the first half. And it did have a feel of one of those games where no matter what they did, it just wasn't going to happen. Especially, I think, late on in the game when Otamendi had that effort from a corner and Ospina somehow kind of knocked it onto the post and it was cleared away. Then Murillo, just as just Tevez was about to tap it in, he slid away. He had a feel of those, like as if it was kind of the players felt it was just faded not to happen. So I think to get through that might actually be a spark in itself, and also having dominated like that, and even in, in Jamaica, and they don't 1-0, but it should really have been 4, you, you do wonder, kind of, you know, law of averages, that they can't keep not scoring, and, and whether the levy's going to break, and same with Messi, I mean, he, he should have had a hat-trick in that game, he's been slightly off his best, but yeah, at the same time, I mean, some of the runs he's offered, if it was by any other player, we'll be talking about one of the players, one of the, players of the tournament, um, so I'd fancy them to click, and, uh, I still think it'll be a Chile Argentina final, probably an Argentina maybe to, to win it. Yeah, I mean, just one last quick one for both of you. Uh, I'm sure a lot of Chelsea fans watching the Argentina match will be pretty excited to see Falcao in such amazing form. How many goals do you think Falcao is going to score 
next season for Chelsea in the <laughs> league and Champions League. First of all, you, Miguel. He hit a good penalty. So, so if they get that? a few penalties, maybe as many as four to five. I'm uh, James. <laughs> oh, any, yeah. any views on this? Uh, do you think Falcao's going to rip it up next season? I do. I'll be generous and I'll say more than four. I'll say six. <laughs> All right, listen, James Young, Miguel Delaney, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers, Liz. Hairdryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Do you weep for the demise of Brazilian football as we well as we knew it about 30 years ago I always kind of feel that Dunga's team that he played on in 1994 wasn't exactly a barrel of laughs no. and they were scraping they had some very good players but they were a functional side mm-hmm. and they got the monkey off their backs and they since then Brazil have uh, well, they've won one World Cup since then I guess with a fairly exciting team but other than that uh, I don't know it's, it's not as though it's just in the last year that suddenly Brazil have given up on their principles yeah. Now they, I mean, no, it isn't. It's been, it's been going a long, a long time. And and going back to Dunga uh, was just such a bizarre move last year of all the things to do. When everybody was talking about, oh, we need to change it. We need to make a fundamental change. Our, our football has completely lost its lost its distinctive identity. Um, to go back to Dunga, who was never really um, seen as a kind of a, a good example for Brazilian football anyway. Dunga's a real cynic. He's like a real, he's like, you know, the world, he's like a Livia Soprano, you know? You know, have you ever seen that scene where, where, um, where little uh, AJ has to go into the hospital to see Livia, to visit his grandmother? And she's just there, you know, she's this evil, um, really evil old woman. <laughs> and she's just there, the world's a big, the world is a jungle, you know? And, you know, at the end, you die in your own arms. And, you know, it's all a big nothing. What makes you think you're so special? He's just kind of staring at her, you know, and she said, that's Dunga, right? <laughs> he just does not. He, and, and he says, look, the world is a tough place. You go out there, you got to be strong. You got to win the battle. You know, a football match is a battle. You know, that's what you got to win. But of course, the reason that the world is like this is because of people like Dunga, right? Because if, if you didn't have Dungas out there doing this, if you didn't have, you know, Gonzalo Jara's, uh, the, the Chilean player, if you didn't have guys doing that kind of thing, Maybe the world would actually be a better place. It's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, what he, his attitude to the world. You know, to go out there and to, you know, to, let's not have anyone think for themselves. I know that's something Joe Schmidt said. <laughs> Joe, oh, no, it was, it was Andrew Trimble, I think, talking about Joe Schmidt. Oh, yeah. He said, we don't want anyone out there <laughs> thinking for themselves. Uh, yeah, I got the sense Andrew Trimble was half joking when he said that to us. That's, you know, he, well, he was making a slightly different point. You know, if you, when, you, when you've got a sophisticated game plan with a lot of different moving parts, you know, everyone has to know what they're supposed to do in order for the, or the whole thing doesn't work. Whereas, you know, Dunga is just... He just he just puts everyone in a bad mood, and the team plays in a bad mood. I remember once the um, Brazilian journalist, who's uh, Ricardo Setion, saying to me, talking about how when Dunga lifted the World Cup in 1994, oh, yeah. he started yeah. screaming. It was just like a, a scream of abuse, like a, just a, a, a string of insults for all the people who who. This is he's lifting the World Cup, you know. What I mean? Even Lothar Mateus, if you remember, when he was lifting the World Cup. Managed to look quite happy. He put on his face was just serene. He was just kind of obviously very smug, 
You know, he's all done with that. He's extremely smug, winning the World Cup. The captain lifts it up, but, you know, did it with a little bit of, little bit of dignity. Dunga's there, you know, all of you guys, you know, you can stick it. You know what you can do with this? He says, branching up. You know what you can stick this? Dunga's more like Muhammad Ali when he beat Sonny Listen. That kind of thing. Cassius Clay as well, at the time, just pointing at each journalist with the gloved fist. You and you and you and you and you. That's it, come on. You and you. You know, Sonny Liston, I suppose, at least was a bad guy there. With Dunga, you know, he'd attained his childhood dream and all he wanted to do was club people over the head with the World Cup. And it's just it's just depressing, you know. And so it's why, you know, I, I don't even necessarily think he's that bad a coach, but I just think he's the wrong. I just don't see any. I think he's done his time now, and maybe he should now go off and do something else. Let's talk Sergio Ramos with Sid Lowe. Sid, uh, we mentioned Man City might be in for him. Certainly Manchester United have had this long-standing interest, some massive transfer fees being bandied about here. What's at the centre of, will he leave Real? What's at the centre of his dispute with Real Madrid? Uh, Florentino Pettis, basically, the, the president. I think the, the situation is that, uh, that, that there is an assumption, uh, and I think it's a natural assumption that a lot of people make, that this is really just about um, contract renewals and that at some stage this will be u- this is just being used as leverage against Real Madrid to sign a new contract. That's, that's emphatically not the case. Now, that's not to say that at some stage the solution to this crisis is that Ramos stays and that there is a new contract, but that is not that, that, if you like, was kind of the, the detonator rather than the situation we're in now. In other words, that was an, an illustration of, of the difficulty of the relationship, part of the reason why the relationship became more difficult, and Ramos now genuinely wants to go. How this ends, obviously, is going to be very, very difficult to predict because it's going to be very difficult to predict how the, the two sides act over the course of these negotiations. Difficult to predict to, to what extent United are able to satisfy the demands of, of, of Real Madrid. But this is, this is genuine. This is real. This is not just the classic thing where, okay, I'll, I'll chuck Man United's name into the hat and, hey, Man City too, that'd be great. And, they're, they're, you know, Brown would then turn up with a, with a great big truckload of cash with Florentino Perez holding some flowers saying, I'm sorry, Sergio, why don't you stay? Yeah, well, I mean, I assume that money is at, somehow at the root of this or at least at some point in the past before other stuff got piled onto it. Do you know exactly when this disagreement uh, began? Because... The, the one thing that I would think about it, looking at it, Sergio Ramos's position at the moment, is it seems almost like a perfect setup that he's got. You know, he's an important player at, at the most important club. Well, he, he you know, Florentino Paris would say the most important club in the world. Uh, he's 29 years old. Probably, does he want to be learning a new language, a new culture at this stage? I'm not sure. It seems like he should want to stay, so this must be a bad disagreement. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you do look at it, and, it and, and he should want to stay. This is the guy that will be the captain um, if and when Ica Casillas leaves, and even if Casillas stays but isn't the first-choice goalkeeper, because, of course, the likelihood is that would be David De Gea, assuming that that deal finally comes through. And, by the way, Real Madrid do assume that it will that it will go through. It doesn't necessarily mean it, that, that it will. Um, he would be the captain, as you say, be on, on the verge of his 30th birthday. He's been there for 10 years. It's the biggest club in the world. He won the European Cup with them. But then all of these things, uh, and, and perhaps unrealistically, perhaps in an emotional sense, but all these things have, have almost swapped sides. If you're looking at this column of, of reasons to leave, reasons to stay, instead of being reasons to stay, these have almost swapped sides to the reasons to leave column. And the reason for that is that, that Ramos looks at this and thinks the relationship with the president was already a little bit difficult. But then you've got a situation in which he basically wins the European Cup for Real Madrid. Um, and, and, and I think it's worth stressing here, not just in the final, but, but in the semi-final against Bayern Munich as well. Uh, and I think in that last month when Real Madrid won the European Cup, I genuinely don't think I've ever seen a centre-back be, be so influential. And Ramos certainly believes that. And, and then he looks at that, and then after the final, there's a, there's a promise that, right, this will be resolved. Don't worry, I know that there's been a little bit of a sticking point over contracts and so on, but it'll be resolved. 
But instead, he gets a very different, or, or he believes that he's confronted by a very different kind of attitude from the club. And so all of those things where, as you say, a very important player at this club, he doesn't think he's being treated like a very important player. Now, I know to all of the rest of us mere mortals, the amount of money that's getting talked about, we all think, well, that's mad. Of course you'd sign for that. But there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of a structural issue, isn't there? And there's a, there's a sense of, and to use that horrible word that footballers use all the time, of respect. And the idea that Bale and Ronaldo and Benzema and Casillas, I see if I can remember the others, James, and I think maybe even Tony Cross, all earn as much or more than him. And, and I, I know... You know, that shouldn't be the be-all and end-all, but that's part of this process of, of, of the two sides kind of not, not joining together. The other thing is that there's a belief that some of the negative things that have been said about Ramos um, in certain sectors of the media over the last... certainly the, I would probably go so far as to say almost the last year, but certainly over the last three or four months, Ramos' beliefs has come from the club. Um, and I don't think that's an entirely unjustified belief either. And so that helps to, to make the relationship more difficult still. That's not to say it's totally beyond some sort of fixing because we come back to the fundamentals, as you've just said. Where would he be better off than Real Madrid, honestly? Uh, Probably uh, nowhere. The fairness the issue, though, is, is here. I mean, you know, OK, we know nobody's going to ultimately shed too many tears for Sergio Ramos not getting paid as much money as he would like. But it, it's obvious that he should be getting paid at least exactly. as much it's as, as the guys. It's not just about figures. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's about the... What it's about, what it's about, it, dressing it's about what it means. Yeah, and it's about how a person sees himself in relation to colleagues in relation to people exactly. who they work with on a day-to-day well, basis. Well, how, how much money do you think Ramos actually is looking for? Because Real Madrid, I think, turned over about 600 million euros. So, given that he is one of their most important players, you would have feel that he, he was actually entitled to a reasonable chunk of that. Right, well, here, here we come to another another element in this. The the, the reports in the media, and I, I'm, I'm not actually 100% sure of this, but the reports in the media have suggested a figure of around about 10 million euros, and that figure has been banded around for a long time. Now, of course, from the perspective, I think, of, of Ramos' camp is, well, How's this figure come out? Why has that figure come out? And whose interest is it for an enormous figure to come out in the media? Um, and, and, of course, then we come back to another process which has already begun and, and may well become accelerated, which is that Real Madrid seem to be incapable of players leaving without it being somehow built up as being someone to blame. It's never just a normal process of a football club. And so you look at the players who've departed over the last, uh, could probably go back almost a decade, the big-name players that have departed have almost invariably somehow had some sort of blame or guilt pointed at them, whether it's the supposed off-field behaviour of Ossil or Schneider, whether it's the fact that he's always injured of, of Robin, whether it's the supposed greediness of Axel Di Maria. And, and, and we've already got an element of that happening now with, with, with Sergio Ramos. And it's difficult to see a way back, but of course there are obvious ways back. And as I say, one of them is a great big truckload of money and a big bunch of flowers saying sorry. Sid, how transferable are, uh, is Ramos's skill set? He's clearly at Real, and particularly as, as the years have gone on, as you said last season, has shown this incredible leadership and he seems to be such a hugely important figure in that club. Would you expect that he could just slot straight into, say, the Manchester United defence and be immediately as good because he's got such obvious physical gifts as a footballer while maybe the mentality uh, can be questioned from time to time and, and Ken has questions sometimes how how likely do you think it is I know this is hypothetical that he would just slot straight in and be uh, uh, the exact same player for say Manchester United well I think it's impossible for him to be the exact same player if only because the communication level is different um, you know we're talking about a player that that, that has a 
an enormous amount of charisma in the dressing room, not least because he communicates well with people. One of the things that's interesting, and I know we've talked about this an awful lot, was, for example, that confrontation between Madrid and Barcelona, when some of the Barcelona players were particularly disappointed with the behaviour of some of the Madrid players, and indeed vice versa. But one of the players they weren't disappointed with was Ramos, because they believed that even when Ramos was, in their eyes at least, misbehaving, that they kind of understood it. But Ramos is, is a guy that will, 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 will kick and fight and play the way that he believes he has to play. And then at the end of it, it's forgotten. And that it will be direct and it won't be sneaking. It won't be behind their back. And there is a sense of, of, of kind of loyalty that I think even players who play against Ramos, they quite like. I mean, look at Diego Costa, who made that brilliant comment about how Ramos kicks me, I kick Ramos, and at the end of the game, it's forgotten. It's no problem. And there is an element of that, I think, that Ramos has that kind of charisma, partly because of the way that he communicates. Now, of course, at United, he wouldn't have that. But the personality element... I think is, is, is probably a constant. We're talking about a guy that was a real leader of the Sevilla team, even as a right-back and even as a 19-year-old before going to Real Madrid. So I think some of those elements would already be there. The other thing, of course, is that some of the status comes from what you've achieved and how you're seen, not just how you are. And this is a guy that would be turning up as, as a world champion. The one thing that, that does obviously strike everybody who thinks about this for, for longer than about 30 seconds is if Real Madrid wants David De Gea and Manchester United wants Sergio Ramos, then... Can't they use these two kind of complementary facts to, to come to some agreement over the future of both players? I mean, is there a link between what happens with De Gea and what happens with Ramos? Well, one of the things that, that Real Madrid have filtered to some of the media here is a belief that actually there isn't a genuine interest in Sergio Ramos from Manchester United. They're just trying to make the De Gea transfer difficult. They're just trying to effectively kind of get some revenge, saying, well, look, you, you spoke to De Gea, you agreed to deal with him, you thought it was going to be easy, we're going to show you that it's not going to be easy. Now, I think Real Madrid are wrong if they really believe that, and I suspect that they don't really believe that. I suspect that this is the message they're trying to put out into the press, not least because I think they're trying to undermine the... I, I don't fully understand why, but I think they're trying to undermine publicly, at least, the sense that this is a, a, a real potential deal. So then that brings us back to the next stage, as you, as you rightly say. Logic suggests that this should happen, not least because Manchester United um, would be entitled to believe that having De Gea means that although they would almost certainly knew they were going to get a note from Real Madrid, certainly with the, with the first bid or maybe even the second bid or the third bid or fourth bid. Let's see how many bids there eventually are for, for Ramos. But they could say, look, although these two deals are not the same deal, it's not a case of swap plus money for, we can say to you, if you want David De Gea, you want us to deal with you on David De Gea, you're going to have to deal with some Ramos or it just doesn't happen. Now, both clubs are in a slightly different positions contractually because Ramos has two years left and De Gea has only one. But in terms of this summer, that is, that is a key factor. The other suspicion, uh, and, and I must admit, I, 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 think I, I think I probably share this suspicion, but I, I, I don't know for sure. The other suspicion is that actually Real Madrid probably don't mind, at least on a personal level, losing Sergio Ramos. But of course, again, they have to be seen as not having sought it and they have to try and get the best possible price for it. And that's one of the reasons why the outcome to all of this is, is, is so unsure, because we don't know how they're going to react to the, to the various bids and the, and the various stages of negotiation over, who knows if it's over the next week or the next two months. Sid, moving the other way is Phil Neville in a coaching capacity with Valencia, which is an interesting one. Do you know what the connection is there? Yeah, um, I assume I know what the connection is, and I, I might be reading too much into this, but of course Peter Lim, the, the owner of Valencia, has been involved with the, with the Salford project with the whole of that Class of 92 group. And there was a moment, I think we're talking about sometime in late April, I believe, when, when both Neville brothers were at Valencia watching, watching the training session. So I think this is about the, the relationship, the closeness of the relationship between Peter Lim and that group of players um, or ex-players about Phil Neville's desire to, to see a different type of football and learn, learn from a different approach. And, and I, I must admit, I'm, 
I'm really quite pleased about this. Uh, I think it, it probably does English football a, a lot of good to have people experience a different type of football, not necessarily better or worse, but a different approach. And, and of course, it maintains the, the British quota because, because, of course, the assistant manager who's gone is Ian Cathro to be replaced by the assistant manager coming in, Phil Neville. Yeah. Peter Lim, what's his view on the whole financial fair play thing? So is he one of the people who's been, who's been uh, kicking up a stink about it, saying that it's, it's tying his hands, or is he actually quite happy to put her along, uh, maybe coming third in that league and, and getting into the Champions League every year? No, he, he's not said anything yet, and actually financial fair play will be very, very significant for Valencia because they are, they are right on the, the, the threshold now. So their, their signings will be limited, despite the fact that, of course, at least in theory, their potential for signing players is absolutely gigantic this, this summer. Because of financial fair play, they may not be able to buy so many. I think Lim's position in football in, as a whole is, is a very interesting and very curious one. And buying Valencia, um, of course, being involved in that sort of project. He's been involved in Formula One as well. And today it's been announced that he's just bought Cristiano Ronaldo's image rights, uh, I think, for the next six seasons, which, which puts us in a slightly odd position in which Ronaldo will be playing for Real Madrid, but his image rights owned by the owner of Valencia. Sorry, how, how, does, never, how does that work then? What, what exactly is he selling? I don't know. He I selling? genuinely don't know how that's going to work. Um, I, I assume that just means that he has the right to exploit those image rights, that he has the right to, to, to therefore presumably take the, the, the profit or some of the profit from those image rights in agreement with Cristiano Ronaldo, who, and this is one of the things that was overlooked at the time when he signed that new deal for Real Madrid, um, which puts him on around about 90 million euros a year after tax. It did not include giving Real Madrid his image rights. Ooh. Okay, Sid, brilliant as always. Thanks a million. My pleasure. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Oh, I love the backing track to our Sid Lowe chats, the low hum of a dog barking in the background. That's uh, Estella, and you don't say a bad word against Estella. Sid goes to war. He will happily hit the mattresses for anyone uh, slagging Estella off. Sounds like a friendly enough kind of dog. It's, it, I wouldn't say the barking is too aggressive there. What, what uh, well, are we ju- talking? Judging by, I mean, Sid has, Sid's Twitter profile picture is of the dog. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's pretty... That's pretty hardcore. What, you know, what Sid, breed of dog is it? It looks like a Labradoodle to me. I'm going to call it. It appears to be a Labradoodle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was quite plaintive, though. I would have thought during that interview. I mean, it, quite, uh, it was a, a sustained bark, yep. I would have thought. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it was that, it was all that mild-mannered. You seemed a little bit uh, stunned at the news that the Cristiano Ronaldo image rights have gone to. Well, it's a weird deal. Valencia. It's. A, I mean, it's. You know, on the basis. Uh, you know, in its basic structure, I suppose it's not that weird. You know, the idea that Cristiano Ronaldo might just accept a bunch of money from someone who can then figure out how to sell all his image rights, and he doesn't have to worry about that. He's just got the money now. Um, I mean, it's, we, we talk about Ronaldo. I'm sure that George Mendes is probably quite well informed about the structure of this deal. You know, he's presumably the man who's who's uh, who's charged with organising the best deal for Ronaldo. So Ronaldo, I suppose, has got money and doesn't have to worry. Well, you never know. Ronaldo might be like, listen, George, step aside for this one. I've got this covered. Maybe. 
I mean, I've just sold my image rights to the to the chairman of Valencia. <laughs> <laughs> George is like, no, Chris. Look Carroll. at all these nuts. I don't know. Sergio Ramos, though, at Manchester United is an interesting concept. I must say, I would be surprised if he was to eventually go there, purely because I don't think that he would adapt very well. I may be doing him a disservice, but you know, he's not a he's not a young guy anymore. He's twenty nine. No, know, he's, but a he's senior. A physical, he's a physically robust man, aggressive. Oh yeah, athletic. Oh, absolutely. He's got there. he's got all that type of stuff. He he has all the um, all the physical attributes. And he's he you know is a is a good footballer. He's a good player on the ball. Um, he does make a few mistakes. And I was interested to hear Sid talk about how the Barcelona players respected him because he was by far the most violent and uh, mm-hmm. you know bad spirited, mean spirited player. Straight up violence, though. Well, well, what about Pepe? Well, Pepe Pepe is probably worse actually. Pepe to be was honest, worse. To be fair, Pepe is probably worse. But yeah. you always thought well, there's something not quite right there. You know what I mean? Pepe, you know, you're sure he's fully in control. Whereas at Ramos, it was just like kind of, you know, the the spoiled brat behavior. Oh, I'm going to lose. But at the same time, you know, men like men like Sergio Ramos own conquered South America. They conquered the New World. They dug all the silver and gold out of the Andes, brought it home, and bust the Spanish economy. They didn't really understand anything about economics, uh, but you know, the, it was men like Sergio Ramos who who did all that, Owen, and uh, and maybe he will end up at Manchester United. I kind of hope he does because I'd like to see him playing in the Premier League. It would be good for a big star player to move in that direction for once, but um, You're I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Good to have you back in, uh, and you too. Good, and thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks, Gerhan. Thank you all. Thank you again. Uh, thanks, thanks very much. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Drop us an email, secondcaptains.irishtimes.com. Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. You know, the, you know the basics. You know how to get in touch with somebody and you just Google us, whatever you want to do. See you later. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.